This episode is brought to you by the MA in International Studies at DePaul University, which draws on critical theory and history to provide a broad education. Students on the course train to become academics and activists. They carry out independent research and work with faculty to complete a large multimedia or written project. You can visit last.depaul.edu for more information. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn, I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. No broadcaster in the world today can rival the cultural prestige of Britain's BBC. From nature documentaries to period drama, its programmes are watched by a global audience. In Britain itself, the news reporting of the BBC is by far the most trusted source of information about current affairs. But the company that established a template for public service broadcasting has come under aggressive scrutiny in recent years. Critics have accused the BBC of using its reputation to peddle propaganda. Now the Conservative government wants to scrap the funding model that has sustained it for the last century. Our guest today is Tom Mills. He's a lecturer in sociology at Aston University and the author of The BBC, Myth of a Public Service. How did the model of public service broadcasting that the BBC exemplifies first take shape? Yeah, I mean, the story of the development of public service broadcasting is it's an interesting one. I mean, or at least I think it's an interesting one. But the, the, the short answer to that question is it kind of emerges almost by accident amongst the jostling of different interests in the 1920s, which was when the BBC was founded. So... Obviously, the early BBC was based around radio. And when radio was was first emerged as a technology, it was a combination of sort of geeky amateurs. And it had also use in military communications. But it was around the early 1920s that it developed the idea of radio having a sort of... uh, being a profitable area, basically. But the basis on which the big companies had assumed they could make money out of radio was by patenting the actual technology. So it was these big technology companies like Marconi, which was the leading the leading corporation, but, but other corporations as well who had developed radio technology. Basically, their economic interests at that time were in selling the radio sets. Now, in order to sell the radio sets, you had to have something being broadcast because until that point you know it was being used in a similar sort of way that you might use the telephone right so the idea of having selling these sets you needed to have some programs some music or whatever broadcast so that was basically where the bbc comes from there was this group of companies who had patented this technology and they wanted to develop broadcasting content then the post office steps in uh, as the state regulator now the reason you have to have regulation in radio uh, just because of the technology because you can't have you, you have to sort of assign people particular wavelengths because it's sort of a finite resource right so you have to have some sort of regulation for broadcasting to work so they approach the post office wanting to produce content to sell their radios and the solution that the post office comes up with is to say well look all of these different corporations you can bandy together and you can create what is essentially a corporate consortium which became the british broadcasting company it was a it was 
well, notionally, I suppose, you know, a for-profit company like any other. And the the purpose of the company was basically just to broadcast um, music and drama and the rest of it so that these companies could make money off selling their radio sets. And then out of this comes, you, you obviously have to cover those costs. The corporations paid for it, but then money came out of the license fee, which is now the the major way that the BBC is still is still funded today. So that was the set of interests which sort of pioneered the, the BBC model. And this was in distinction to what was developing in the United States, which at that time, British politicians and regulators saw the more chaotic process of the development of broadcasting in the United States. They wanted to avoid that, basically. So that's why you had this more sort of statist administration. But the the post office, now, I think it's worth sort of saying when we think about the post office, you know, we think of it as like a lot of British institutions as being sort of quite quaint and the rest of it. I, th- I think it's useful to think about, you know, what we're talking about when we talk about the post office and the British state. And I think it's useful some of the work that David Edgerton has done recently on thinking about the state capacity and the technological and the warfare capacity of the British state and the British imperial state in this interwar period because when we're talking about the post office you know we're talking about the state regulatory infrastructure for like a, a one of the most powerful states that had ever existed up up to that point right so the, the post office we could think of it as being quite quaint but think of it as being like the you know at the core of this uh, imperial state this imperial british state so these big companies join this corporate consortium. They uh, appoint this guy, John Reef, who becomes the BBC's uh, first director general. He's not called the director general at this stage. He becomes that after the BBC becomes the British Broadcasting Corporation. And they basically aren't particularly interested in making the programmes. They just want to start their radios. The state administrators don't want to do it themselves. So Reef creates this uh, administration that becomes the BBC. And they essentially like cede all control to them, and the corporations lose interest in it. So that the, they basically don't aren't aren't particularly interested in any kind of control. So that's the origin of of the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company. And Reef starts to develop these various rationales for the uh, form that broadcasting takes, which take on a more sort of high minded public purpose uh, around sort of uh, notions, Victorian sort of morality and, and ideas of of public service, which creates a sort of idea of the BBC being um, aloof from from commercial culture and the rest of it. And that's a distinct sort of character that starts to define the BBC. But really, it's important to remember in this story that it hadn't really occurred to the big corporations at this point that the broadcasting content itself could be monetized in the way that it later became clear in the United States, particularly in the 1930s, when you get a sort of central cluster of the, you know, the big advertising corporations who realise that this is a very useful medium for creating a commercial culture. The British system, for various reasons, goes down a different direction. And it's not until 1926 when a distinct form emerges for the BBC that we essentially still have today, which is the British Broadcasting Corporation. So it becomes a public company operating under a royal charter, very much part of the British establishment, removed from commercial pressures and with a kind of arm's length relationship to the state. I mean, obviously, we can talk about how that 
in fact plays out a bit more but 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 that's where that's where the BBC came from and and that that's how the format takes em- emerges now the sort of ideal there that sometimes got banded around was this idea that the BBC would be independent from politics but the reality was 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 rather different in its early years what was the relationship of the BBC to the holders of political power in Britain so in the early years that we've just discussed, the, the, the early 1920s when the BBC was a company, you know, it, it operated under certain rules and under, and uh, it was, I suppose, still sort of, you know, subordinate to the political system. It was regulated by the post office and, and the rest of it. But it's not really until the general strike of 1926 when all all of these negotiations around the BBC becoming a corporation rather than a company that that, the very sort of distinct relationship to the politicians start to emerge. So there's this kind of jostling around um, between the BBC, these negotiations taking place when the general strike hits in 1926, which was the first and only general strike in in British history. And then the BBC finds itself in a very difficult and precarious situation there, because all of the newspapers have basically been shut down. And it left only in terms of like news, which was obviously very important in the context of a national level strike, the government's kind of propaganda sheet, basically, and the BBC. Now, at this point, the BBC was sort of notionally independent of politics, but as a sort of, actually, the formal powers that the politicians or really the Secretary of State had over the BBC were considerable. I mean, they could command the BBC to broadcast something or or not broadcast something, and there were all kinds of limitations over what the BBC could do. It had until that point also sort of not wanted to encroach on the power of the private press and the wire services. So it had had a relatively limited role in, in news. But it sort of steps up in the context of the general strike out of necessity. And from the politicians' perspective, they basically split. This is a conservative government between hardliners who want to take the BBC under direct control, principally the Chancellor Church, William, uh, Winston Churchill, and the sort of more moderate strategic uh, wings, which included the Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin, who wanted to give the BBC a degree of notional independence, but to maintain the threat of commandeering the BBC. And the reasoning that that he and, and others gave was that it would be a much more effective instrument for them in terms of persuasion, in terms of uh, winning the strike and, and de- defeating the workers, if people believed the BBC to be independent, if they took it under direct control, it would basically lose any kind of persuasive power and it'd be, be less useful to them. Churchill was much more gung-ho and he thought it'd be much more useful to have it under direct control. So there emerges this sort of precarious relationship here, this kind of quasi-independence that the BBC holds during the general strike. And this is referred to in, in a lot of the literature. But really, the, the extent to which people have been talked about impartiality and independence in this period, they really underplayed the degree of uh, proximity and conspiracy, for want of a better word, uh, between the people at the top of the BBC and the government. I mean, on the one hand, the BBC leadership was sort of subordinate to the politicians. 
On the other hand, John Reith was a willing participant in the strike. He was very supportive of the Prime Minister. He helped him write a speech. He, the Prime Minister gave a speech, in fact, from John Reith's own desk, and he later remarked on how wonderful this event was, and he should have a little plaque on his desk because it was so important for for breaking the strike. And he felt that the BBC needed to serve the national interest, which, as far as he was concerned, was the, the position of the government. So there was no question from the people at the top of the BBC of impartiality in any sort of substantive sense in the in the way to which you or I or, or listen to this podcast or, or even I think uh, liberally minded people would would understand the term. I mean that it was the BBC was very explicitly partial. In 2009, the BBC journalist Andrew Marr presented a documentary series called The Making of Modern Britain. On the first morning of the strike, Britain came to a virtual standstill. When he reached the general strike, Marr grew very excited talking about the role of upper-class strikebreakers. But the government already had a small army of strike-breaking volunteers at its disposal. City gents shoveled coal at the gasworks. The Ranelagh Polo Club patrolled central London as special constables on their ponies. Titled ladies and debutantes turned up to organise food supplies. One posh drama student wrote to her mother about the gentlemen volunteers on the London Tube. It's perfectly mad to hear a beautiful Oxford voice crying, Uxbridge and Harrow train, rather than Uxbridge and Arra. It's perfectly jolly and such an improvement on the ordinary humdrum state of things. But it was the railways that attracted the real toffs. The Honourable Mrs Beaumont led stable duty at Paddington. Lord Monkswell was a signalman at Marylebone. And the Honourable Lionel Guest successfully drove a train all the way from Liverpool Street to Yarmouth. The reason I go into this history and talk about the general strike is that I think it sets this kind of pattern which you see throughout the BBC's uh, life, really, which has been this degree of sort of operational autonomy from the government and a sort of operating between a grey area between any genuine independence and being a you know a direct mouthpiece of government. The BBC has always operated in that grey area. Now, when you get down to it, into details, you, what you find is often there are there's a degree of tension between politicians and people at the top of the BBC, but often they tend to be uh, seeing eye to eye, but are also very mindful of how people think about the BBC or perceive its independence. So in the example of the general strike, I mean, the moderates and John Reef himself were both aware of the fact that if the BBC that the, the key thing for them was the perception of the BBC's independence, right? Not its substantive independence. Because from the BBC's leadership's perspective, uh, they wanted to keep the politicians happy, but they also want to maintain their public legitimacy. And from the politicians' perspective, 
they wanted to maintain a degree of power and influence over the BBC, but they didn't want to be always be seen to be doing so because then it becomes less effective. So you can see there's a sort of meeting of minds and interests at the top of the BBC. How that works throughout the whole organisation is a slightly more complex picture. I mean, my work is usually, for the most part at least, focused on the kind of high politics of the BBC and, and the, then looks at the impact that that tends to have on its on its journalism and its cultural production and the rest of it. Um, but just to finish up on the question of political control, I mean, from 1926 onwards through 1930s and to the Second World War, I mean, really, the BBC assumed a very conservative political character uh, and sort of naturalised these kinds of I- informal and formal relationships to not only politicians, but officialdom and uh, and the British state. And that really very straightforwardly characterised its, its, its early years. Um, there's sort of an argument about the extent to which that changed over time. How was the BBC affected by the social movements and the wider cultural climate of the 1960s? This isn't actually, this isn't so straightforward a question. I mean, there was, there's obviously, I mean, I, I think there's no doubt that there was definitely a considerable period of cultural change from the 1960s. I mean, even really up to the 1980s. Um, and the picture's kind of complicated. Now, in terms of the the golden era of broadcasting, I mean, that kind of, it's usually seen as being under the leadership of, of Hugh Green, which was, in the 60s and really before what we associate with like the late 60s sort of social movements you know that that get into their swing particularly in the 1970s for the BBC sort of the heyday of its liberal culture is that period in the 19 earlier 1960s a period of relative affluence but also relative affluence at the BBC as you get a pickup of television licenses and a generally less sort of deferential culture starts to develop at the BBC and into the 1970s as well, you have this kind of shift in the BBC's cultural production, which, you know, reflects the broader culture. You start to see the emergence of more sort of working class dramas and more political documentaries, but also over time as well, a different sort of ethos of journalism. So one of the legacies of this sort of deference, as it's sometimes called, has also been a redefining the idea of journalism as being a kind of oppositional endeavour, right? And that, that definitely has an impact on the BBC. Now, in terms, the, the reason I said the picture is slightly complicated is you see almost immediately from the late 1960s, a sort of early conservative turn at the BBC, small c conservative turn, if you like, against some of the, that kind of 60s culture, um, the investigative journalism, but also the anti-racist movements and, and so on and so forth. There, there are there are debates within the BBC and there's a consciousness at the top of the BBC that, you know, they need to represent the whole nation and impartiality means that they shouldn't be supporting anti-racist struggles and so on and so on. So, so there's a debate, there's a sort of small c conservative term, but I think you could say that in, in in combination with younger people arriving at the BBC, the broader cultural shift, and importantly, the arrival of, first of all, ITV, so the BBC's major commercial rival, and then much later, Channel 4, 
each has an influence on the broader industry of which the BBC was part. So that that's all that's all sort of in the mix as to what's going on in terms of the the cultural climate of the sixties and and the social movement. There's the broader culture, and there's also a shift in the political economy of the media, and there's also and it, there's an attempt at the top of the BBC to sort of try and put the lid on that a bit. So you you see you see these kinds of um, cultural conflict playing out in the documentary record at the BBC during the 1970s, these debates about what impartiality means and and how that should be construed and what the BBC's relationship should be to uh, social change and so on. How has the BBC approached the wars in which the British state was involved? So, I mean, there's a lot of research on the BBC's reporting, um, some based on sort of content analysis, looking at how the BBC frames particular issues, you know, who gets to speak, who doesn't, who's afforded legitimacy It's in, in its reporting. And then there's also a lot of historical work, which uses the very extensive documentary record that's available on the BBC. And I'd say like the the overall picture from that research is that the BBC, as you'd expect from our preceding discussion, tends to be overly representative of conservative politicians, official sources. It tends to be deferential towards the British state. And it's not that oppositional voices don't appear. It's just that the voices who do do appear tend to be sort of establishment opposition, if you like. They tend to be looking for sort of fractures within the elite itself and to try and represent that because that's seen as having greater legitimacy so there's a there's in any way a sort of broader sense in the bbc that you know politics happens in this sort of official sphere of of westminster and officialdom and for for them that's where politics takes place right now in periods of war Obviously, you get disagreements within those circles as well. And there's always tension between the government of the day and how the BBC... So basically, what the BBC tries to do is it tries to represent um, the different voices within that sort of elite consensus, if you like. And then the government tries to narrow the debate because the government's usually driving a, a more narrow political agenda. Now, that kind, the reason I mention that is it kind of explains what to some people seems like a bit of a paradox, which is that on the one hand, most of the academic research suggests that, that, and in fact, even the BBC's own documentary records suggests that the BBC tends to be very favourable to war, and yet governments tend to perceive the BBC as being sort of anti-war or anti-government and the rest of it. And you see this contradiction all the time in, in discussions around the BBC's coverage. Now, on, on war, though, you know, as I said, the records very clear, whether you look at Suez Crisis, uh, its coverage of Northern Ireland or um, issues related to war and peace like nuclear weapons, the later Iraq war, which maybe we can come to and, and discuss in a bit more detail, you you tend to see exactly the picture that I mentioned earlier, not only the BBC generally be, being favourable to the case for war or military intervention or, 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 or nuclear weapons or whatever, whatever the discussion is, but you also see these behind the scenes relationships between people at the top of the BBC, um, the secret state, senior politicians, the cabinet office and the rest of it. So you have these these informal networks and, and that's where 
in negotiation with the government, the BBC actually uh, formulates its editorial policy. So that that explains why the, why the BBC has a distinct sort of pro-war bent in, in its coverage. During the 1980s and 90s, what steps did the Thatcher and John Major governments take to reshape the BBC? Most people who write about this tend to focus on the BBC's relationship with the Thatcher government rather than the major government. In fact, there's a case for making this point more broadly in relation to Thatcherism, that it was the major period that was more significant, certainly for the BBC. So what happened in the 1980s was that the Thatcher government, much like the Johnson government today, was engaged in a very ill-tempered war of words with the BBC, but also started appointing politically sympathetic figures to the BBC board. There had been a sort of convention until that point that the political parties would be broadly bipartisan, but what what the Thatcher government decided to do was just take every opportunity for political and political and cultural influence that the BBC it could get it could take, and that meant appointing people to the board who would be politically sympathetic. During the 1980s, there was one BBC programme about which Margaret Thatcher had no complaints. The satirical comedy Yes Minister depicted the relationship between politicians and civil servants at the highest levels of government. One of its creators, Anthony Jay, was a strident free market ideologue. He peppered the show with scenes that presented the civil service as a conspiracy by state bureaucrats against the public good. Bernard, what happens at the moment if there is some vacant land in, say, Nottingham, and there are rival proposals for its use, you know, a hospital, a college or an airport? Well, we set up an interdepartmental committee, Department of Health, Department of Education, Department of Transport, Treasury, Environment, ask for papers, hold meetings, propose, discuss, revise, report back, redraft, normal thing. Precisely. Months of fruitful work. <laughs> Leading to a mature and responsible conclusion. But if you have regional government, they decide it all in Nottingham. Probably in a couple of meetings, complete amateurs. <laughs> it is their city. What happens to us? Much less work. Yes, much less work. So little that ministers might almost be able to do it on their own. So we'd have much less power. Well, I don't know whether I really want power. Bernard, if the right people don't have power, do you know what happens? The wrong people get it. (laughs) Politicians, councillors, ordinary voters... But aren't they supposed to in a democracy? This is a British democracy. (laughs) How do you mean? British democracy recognises that you need a system to protect the important things of life and keep them out of the hands of the barbarians. Yes, Minister also put forward a hostile caricature of left-wing union militants and local councillors. Thatcher herself was so fond of the show that she even appeared in a novelty sketch with its leading cast members which she had apparently written herself. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, it was a rather humorless exercise, in contrast with the original show. Yes, it's all very simple. I want you to abolish economists. (laughs) Abolish economists, Prime Minister? Yes, abolish economists, and quickly. Now, Sir Humphrey. Prime Minister. uh, What did you say your degree was? Uh, 
Uh, by degree, Prime Minister? Uh, yes, Sir Humphrey, degree. Your degree. You have one, I take it. Most permanent secretaries do, or perhaps two. <laughs> um, well, actually, Prime Minister, uh, a double first. Congratulations, Sir Thank Humphrey. Thank you very much. But what in? <laughs> uh, politics and um, economics. <laughs> Capital, my dear Sir Humphrey. Capital. You all know exactly where to start. <laughs> yes, Prime Minister. <laughs> now, what they ended up doing then, after a series of conflicts over the BBC's reporting, was ultimately, um, it's a sort of a long, complicated picture, but ultimately the government, via its appointees, was able to drive out the then Director General Alistair Milne, that's the father of Seamus Milne, Corbyn's uh, former advisor. And uh, he was replaced by a guy called Michael Checklin, who's who's not terribly important. The, the more important figure who arrived at the BBC at this point was a guy called John Burt. Now, John Burt was appointed Deputy Director General, and he was going to be in charge of the BBC's journalism because M Michael Checklin, who became Director General in 1987, uh, what essentially amounted to... Uh, a palace coup didn't have any experience in journalism, didn't have a background in journalism. He was the BBC accountant. This was quite unusual. And they brought him Bert from an ITV company, LWT. And he was a sort of uh, known for like highbrow political journalism, basically. And he had these kinds of rationales for how they should do journalism differently. The BBC, he becomes a very unpopular character there. Now, in terms of his background, he was very close to the members of the Institute of Economic Affairs, uh, the foremost neoliberal think tank in the 1970s, and they'd become an adherent of what we now call neoliberalism, what usually then was referred to as monetarism. He was also very, very close to a guy called Peter Jay, who himself was a, was a journalist who was a sort of very famous proponent of monetarist ideas at the times. Now, what he does is he comes in with these ideas, uh, very sort of classic neoliberal ideas about how a public organisation should be run. And he introduces something in the 1990s called producer's choice, which is essentially an internal market. Uh, the idea there was that you have to have buying and selling relationships within, within an organisation like the BBC because that would make things costable and that could then mean you could measure efficiency. So it was all a sort of idea of like a public organisation not only being wasteful and inefficient, but also just sort of serving the interests of the bureaucrats who sort of house them. So these, these sort of public choice ideas, uh, I was very influenced by all of that. So when he arrives, uh, he introduces this internal market. Uh, he brings a lot of its journalism, the BBC's journalism, under more direct kind of managerial control. And the BBC starts uh, commissioning programmes from the private sector. Now, this had been essentially imposed on the BBC earlier by the Thatcher government. The Thatcher government had this big review of broadcasting called the Peacock Committee in 1987, I think it was. And this was chaired by a guy who, who worked at the Institute of Economic Affairs. And they wanted to, Thatcher, it said, wanted the BBC to take advertising. Actually, the, uh, the, the newspapers didn't want that and neither did the advertisers particularly. So 
Uh, that never happened. What they did instead was they said, look, we need to create a broadcasting market. And the way we do that is we get the BBC to commission its programs from, from the private sector. So these two particular measures lead to this kind of stifling sort of market bureaucracy at, at the BBC. And that really profoundly changed the BBC's culture. And indeed, the intention was to do so. I mean, the record, again, is on this is, is very clear, uh, not only from the internal record, but from the accounts of people at the time. So um, not many people, I think, read John Burt's biography, but he was very explicit about his politics and about the, his his um, mission at the BBC being one of profound cultural change away from what he saw as a sort of command economy, you know, Soviet style command economy um, towards a, a, a market based um, system of, of organisation. And that's how he saw his his. Uh, his programme of change. Um, a lot of people at the BBC didn't understand it in those terms. In fact, if you read the way it's described by people at the BBC, they're, all, they're often talking about Stalinism or, you know, Leninism or whatever, when they're describing Burt's management style. But it was exactly what we now call neoliberal and which other people, you know, anyone who's worked in a public organisation today will be very familiar with, with the sorts of management practices which actually pioneered at the, at the BBC at that time. What was the significance of Iraq and the Hutton inquiry for the political culture at BBC News and Current Affairs? Basically, there was a short period after Burr where a guy called Greg Dyke was director general of the BBC. And he didn't differ so much politically from John Burr. I wouldn't say uh, like Burr, he was a sort of a right wing Labour man. He was very sort of pro-market, but he was he was certainly a more affable sort of personable character but he he was also less sort of dogmatic about managerial practices and the rest of it that had had defined the which defined the the Burt period and he was uh, with his arrival at the BBC and the arrival of the new Labour government there was a sort of shift in the mood at the BBC with the new funding they'd received and a sense of leadership that would support journalism and and the rest of it. So the the mood for a period definitely shifted. Now, what happened ultimately as a result of the BBC's reporting on on Iraq, well, about which are not only there's now been sort of several inquiries which have dealt either directly or peripherally with what happened. Essentially, what happened was that Greg Dyke and and the chair of the BBC were forced to resign after the the Blair government had ferociously attacked the BBC. I mean, principally, actually, Alistair Campbell, who, as the figures from the time recall, became absolutely uh, obsessed with 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 the BBC and really went after the, the leadership in a very vindictive fashion. Well, now we are joined by Alistair Campbell, a, a rare moment. Um, as part of his campaign against the BBC... Alistair Campbell gave a remarkably bad-tempered interview with John Snow of Channel 4 News. The BBC, in their letter to me, and it's fascinating, they have post-facto justification of a story by citing sources in newspapers which wrote stories subsequent to, their, to the story that they had done. Some of those stories, I know for a fact, are incorrect. One of them, 
uh, there's no point going through all the detail, and I think the public are probably bored rigid with this already. One of those stories uh, I know for a fact is wrong, and I've addressed in evidence to the... I think the public the is committee. more likely to be concerned at the extraordinarily intemperate language which is coming out on behalf of the Prime Minister in your name. The story was a lie. It is a lie. Correct. Weasel words. Weasel not incidentally spelt correctly uh, in consistent uh, terms with the original well, fake dossier Well, as I understand it, if I may say produced. so, the statement that you're reading from was read to the Press Association. So so that, that, I wouldn't get hung up on a spelling mistake by somebody who's, who's typed it. Although I know that you, and you also, John, reported that the four people in my office were responsible for writing the so-called dodgy dossier when they were not. However, put that to one side. The reason that is weasel words is it does not answer the questions that I put. I asked the BBC whether they were standing by the allegation they made the BBC made, as John Humphreys described it, the BBC made the allegation that we deliberately exaggerated, abused, distorted intelligence. The answer to the question you put to the BBC, do they stand by it, the answer is yes. The answer, a robust yes. Excuse me, that letter is about as robust as Blackburn Rovers wore when they played Trelleborgs. I'll tell you, the, the answer to the question, yes or no, did we abuse British intelligence? The answer to that question is no. We it don't is know. The answer to that question Excuse is me. we do not Excuse know. Excuse me. And the reason we do not know is that there is obfuscation and diversion, part of which we're seeing right here played out before us. The fact is MPs want to question the chiefs of the intelligence services and should be allowed to do so. Instead, you're preferring, you, the government, are preferring a hole-in-the-corner operation with an intelligence committee which is not held in public and which is answerable to the Prime Minister. Well, part of the problem I alluded to in my evidence to the Select Committee is that a lot of journalists see their mission to discredit politicians and the political process. You describe people like Ann Taylor, who chairs the Intelligence and Security Committee, as a hole-in-the-corner operation. You're talking in the intelligence agencies about people who do very difficult, brave jobs You know for very this well that Ann Taylor was appointed by the Prime Minister, Correct. is answerable to the Prime Minister and accountable to the Prime Minister. No, she submits it, her reports to the Prime Minister. He the has Prime the right has to, to publish judgments about what is published on security and intelligence grounds. The point about the committee that is sitting here and that questioned you today, uh, 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 the day before yesterday, on Wednesday, and questioned the, the Foreign Secretary today, is that it is one that is accountable to MPs, selected by MPs, and accountable to us as electors. And that is the committee which should be allowed to get to the root of this issue, and that surely is what the government is preventing them doing. So essentially what happened for... A second time was leadership of the BBC was was taken out. You know the organisation was sort of decapitated, as it were, by a uh, a government which was determined to sort of tame the BBC. Now, like any organisation which experiences such a thing, of course, it then took on a sort of a more conservative turn, and there were processes implemented in the aftermath of Hutton, which clearly were intended to have create a more risk-averse editorial culture. I mean, my own view is that there is a bit of a risk of exaggerating some of this stuff and trying to and and seeing the pre-Hutton BBC as being much more independent and sort of distinct compared to its its, its later trajectory. The if you look at some of the figures who'd been involved around that time, I mean, say Andrew Gilligan, who who was responsible for the famous uh, forty-five minute claim on the Today program, which became the subject of 
the attacks by Campbell. You know, he had been brought in specifically to try and create a more sort of news news breaking kind of uh, risk taking journalistic culture at today, and he didn't really actually fit fit in there. I mean, like Kevin Marsh for example, like very quickly lament some of his reporting practices. They thought they, you know, he put the BBC into hot water and the rest of it. So the BBC was already risk averse. And I think basically there was this this period of, of growth and, and more confidence that created more room for people to do good journalism. But I think you can also make a case for Hutton as being a sort of return back to what's broadly speaking the norm and certainly have become the norm actually in the Burt period when a lot of the more risky and oppositional journalistic culture which had taken hold as we as we mentioned earlier partly as a, a kind of legacy of 1960s social movements had really already started to be uh, rolled back in in the Burt period. What did the reporting on the financial crisis tell us about the relationship between the BBC and the world of business? This is sort of the other um, half of the of this neoliberal transformation of the BBC, really, which is the focus of my original research on the BBC. I mean, I looked at two things. One aspect was the BBC's response to the social democratic crisis of the 1970s and, and how it understood its own role and its relationship with politics in, in that context. And the other main element was looking at how the, the BBC's process of cultural change in the aftermath of Thatcherism. So we talked a little bit about the internal market and producer choice and that that process of sort of neoliberal bureaucracy and commercialization that took place at the BBC and to some extent is actually still ongoing the other part of that was not only a more sort of controlled risk adverse journalism but also a much more commercial culture in terms of the BBC's output and this was very explicitly uh, stated by the leadership of the BBC that they wanted the BBC to be more pro-business They saw essentially the existing reporting practices of the BBC as being out of step with cultural change in Britain. So, you know, to put it rather crudely, I mean, the BBC had sort of embodied a certain set of democratic principles and practices in its economics reporting, which in the aftermath of the defeat of the miners and the deregulation of the city, Big Bang and the rest of it, was basically, from the perspective of the BBC leadership, seen as anachronistic. So they previously had labour correspondence and industry correspondence. And when there's an economic story, you know, the question would be, well, what would the impact be on wages and employment? Now, it's important to say that a lot of the reporting of these labour and industrial correspondence, you know, was was sort of conservative. You know, these weren't necessarily left-wing figures. And in the way that they tended to report on the economy and and explain the um the workings of the economy to people did tend to uh disadvantage the perspectives of 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 organized workers and to reflect the dominant sort of assumptions of of business and the government and the rest of it even in the 1970s but there's there's this very marked shift nevertheless that takes place away from that type of reporting now, the upshot of this, the picture is sort of complicated in how it plays out institutionally at the BBC, and I go into some detail about that in the book. But the upshot of it is that these guys who used to report on the world of work, used to report on the labour movement and on trade unions, they basically disappear. They, they either get summarily dismissed or some of them move into politics. And 
the new kids on the block are all economics or business correspondents. So when Bert comes in, he brings in his old friend from the Times, Peter Jay, the monetarist, who I mentioned earlier to be the BBC's first economics editor. And over time in the 1990s, you get the emergence of these guys who are sort of doing a lot of business programming at the BBC, which is also something that's really spreading in, in Channel 4. It's becoming more popular in the press as well, basically because you have there's a lot of money in um, advertising if you have this kind of this, this, this kind of content. So this is changing the broader industry. And the BBC sort of doubles down on that. Uh, eventually, it merges together its economics and its business reporting into this one sort of giant organization called the Business and Economics Unit. And this is what's operating and has sort of Peston, Robert Peston at the helm at that time, at the time of the 2008 financial crisis. The certain ideas that are embedded in how they understand the economy, uh, to put it straightforwardly, like number one, the idea of the economy as being in any sense a conflict between interests, you know, uh, between uh, workers and employers, which is embedded within that social democratic model, even if there's assumption that, you know, you should have peace, say, on the employer's terms, there is that sort of understanding, number one, that there are conflicting interests in society. And number two, that when we think about how the economy, we need to think about the impact it has in a sort of public sense, you know, that all sorts of sort of disappears, Um, you get a combination of a kind of the economy is something that needs to be managed in a technocratic fashion. And that tends to be the more sort of highbrow wing, like the Peter Jays and Evan Davises of this world, the people who are coming out of Oxford PPEs, uh, who really start to dominate. And then there are the business reporters who basically want to develop this sort of populist uh, vision of uh, of Britain as a nation of shareholders and and, and the rest of it. This way of of thinking about the economy then ends up sort of conflating business with the economy. And and, and that's that's essentially, I mean, to put it rather crudely, is how the BBC, the the structure of BBC's economics reporting had, had bedded in by the time we got to the financial crisis of 2008. These were the voices who the editors wanted on the programme to explain to people how what had happened with the financial system and what had led to it. And I think that became particularly important when it came to the reporting of austerity. So there's quite a lot of work that's been done looking at the BBC's reporting, not only at the financial crisis, but the the policy response and, and the way that the Conservative government essentially ended up putting the cost of the financial crisis on most vulnerable people in society. That was that was explained in a particular way that I think in very important ways, in my view, laid the groundwork for the political assault that was launched by the Cameron Osborne government in, in, in 2010 or from 2010. What impact did the policies and appointments of the Conservative government have on the BBC in the years since 2010? So basically, the response in 2010, when you get the arrival of this this Conservative government and the new Labour period has firmly come to a close with the departure of Gordon Brown, they they basically try and draw the BBC into the politics of austerity. So there's a there's a harsh licence fee deal imposed on the BBC in in 2010 
in in the context of that, I think it was called the Comprehensive Spending Review, which is was you know the initiative that that gives rise to austerity basically, and the license fee gets frozen, and uh, George Osborne reputedly wants to impose a whole series of other costs onto the BBC. One of which was the cost of over 75's license fees, which have been covered by the government as a since the uh, since the Brown uh, by the Brown government. Well, actually, I think it was before uh, Brown was prime minister when he when he was chancellor. So basically, the government has subsidised that. What the Conservative and Liberal coalition did was that they they froze the license fee and then imposed costs on the BBC. So it was basically just a way of cutting the BBC's income without actually cutting it so the BBC had to also cover the cost of the World Service which had been funded directly by the Foreign Office up to that point it was essentially a sort of understood and still is understood as, as an instrument of soft power or you know um, a propaganda for the for the British state they really doubled down on that five years later when the Conservatives returned to government and that's when Osborne then Im- imposes a another very harsh funding deal again negotiated more or less behind closed doors, imposed on the BBC by its then leadership, and this time imposing the cost of the over 75s licence fee, which had sort of been narrowly avoided in, in 2010. Now, the upshot of all that between then and now has been a huge decrease uh, in the BBC's funding, which has been estimated by Ender's analysis to be somewhere in the region of 30% cut in real terms over the course of a decade, which is actually, you know, it's an absolutely extraordinary level of cuts for any organisation to to have to endure. So there's been this, there's been this enormous financial squeeze at the BBC. Um, and in combination with that, you've had the appointments of conservative figures to the BBC, who have very explicitly sort of sought to shift its editorial culture. And this has been you know, there's a lot of history of this taking place. I mean, basically, the people at the top of the BBC, they are appointed by government, uh, but they also, in any case, have to negotiate with government for the settlement of the licence fee. Now, if you reduce the licence fee, that increases your power over the BBC for a government, because it means that the people at the top of the BBC have to go back to you again to ask for more money. And it also has the effect of increasing the authority of your political appointees in the institution, right? Because if, you, if you're imposing cuts on organisations, somebody has to drive through those cuts. So it tends to empower that sort of managerial authority. So you get this sort of conservative turn at the BBC. I mean, how to explain that? Well, if you think about what happens with with funding cuts i mean the way i think about it is like this you you get a period of growth when an organization has more funding and that tends to create new departments it tends to mean you can recruit people it, people tend to be more self confident and when you get periods of austerity uh, that tends to entrench and strengthen managerial control and create a small C conservative culture, and in this case, really a big C conservative culture, because you get at the top of the BBC at this stage, you know, we've got Tim Davey, who's the current director general, who was an active conservative in the 1990s and was formerly head of the BBC's commercial wing. You've got Richard Sharp, who's a major donor to the Conservative Party and a funder of um, very right wing think tanks. 
you've got Robert Gibb, who's who's formerly at the BBC, but then um, moved to Downing Street to be a, a an advisor to Theresa May, who's reportedly tried to block the appointment of liberal, not even left wing journalist, to the BBC as from his position on the board. In 2020, Robbie Gibbs spoke at a meeting on the future of the BBC, organised by the Taxpayers' Alliance, a right-wing pressure group. He explained why he had joined the BBC in the first place. I'm a long-standing Conservative. I'm not uh, a Chris Patton apologist-type Conservative. I'm a proper Thatcherite Conservative that joined the BBC when I was in my 20s, having watched a programme on Newsroom South East, I don't think it exists anymore, about the NHS reforms that the then government, Tory government were introduced that the reporter glibly described as privatisation. It wasn't a guest. This was uh, the BBC stating that NHS trusts were privatisation. And I took a view, you can take two positions. I could have spent the last 20 years sniping from the sidelines, complaining that the, what's the BBC got any right to licence fee or do what I did is set about joining the BBC to put the case um, for impartiality which I will return to ad nauseum over the evening to basically to say that the only justification there is for a licence fee is if for the BBC it to be a public sector broadcaster that provides something that the market is not providing and that is impartial coverage. Gibb went on to say how important it was for the BBC to be more sympathetic to opponents of immigration. He described the Windrush scandal as a setback for those efforts. You know, attitudes to immigration is a, is, a, is a classic. So I just, I mean, I've monitored, you know, in terms of on Europe as well. It used to be, the BBC used to have this sort of language about anti-Europe was the phrase, and then BBC stopped, they called it Eurosceptic, and... And then they and then they got all that in order. Then then it was on immigration. There was a you know there was this default position that immigration was anyone that was wanting to control immigration was somehow racist. And then BBC got their act together, and then they were in a better place. And then there was Windrush, and it went back to that. You know, it's a constant battle. So yes, there's been a sort of rightward shift at at the BBC, which is also borne out in content analysis done by scholars looking at the BBC's general sort of editorial culture, the balance of different voices that appear in programming, the sorts of experts that appear on on the TV and uh, and the rest of it. And that takes us up right to today, really, where we've got a, a recent announcement that the BBC's licence fee is going to remain frozen. And we've also had this kind of ratcheting up of uh, political pressure and the so-called culture war. So a lot of this has resonance uh, really in, in earlier periods in, in the BBC's history. But I, I think it's fair to say that the BBC now is probably more right wing and more dysfunctional than it has been at any point in its history. How did the BBC respond to challenges of the last decade, such as the Scottish independence movement, first of all, and then Jeremy Corbyn's leadership? Of the Labour Party and what did we learn from that experience about its current editorial and organisational culture? What I was trying to do with my research was exactly to sort of think about okay what are the structures at the BBC that give rise to the content it produces right so there's a lot of work in um, media sociology looking at how the BBC reports and understands issues you know whether that comes from a sort of 
sort of content analysis side of things or what sometimes called discourse analysis as sort of different schools but I mean there's there's a lot of research we know a lot about how the BBC reports and I was interested in the question of why 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 does it report in the way it does and I think the the story that I tell in the book based on you know other people's research as well as my own and the extensive archival record we have at the BBC shows that the BBC has this this distinct relationship to officialdom and the state that we've discussed it's tied to formal politics and the, and, and and downing street via its funding model by the appointments which which we've been discussing via its its funding mechanism but on top of that you also have the social background of the sorts of people who populate the bbc the executives at the top paid extraordinary amounts of money and so are its senior journalists who sort of shape the uh shape its day-to-day reporting and its most well-known figures they all tend to be come from similar sorts of class backgrounds they all attended you know almost all of them attended oxford or cambridge and one of these other elite universities and went to private school you know the private school figures are massively overrepresented at the top of the BBC. So you've got all, all of these different things together. Well, what would we expect this kind of institution to do? I mean, in terms of the Scottish referendum, you know, it's uh, obviously the BBC in its uh, culture and its structure is tied to the structure of the British state. And we've seen a degree of regionalization in BBC production, which has, has matched the the, the political shift towards the devolution in the nations very recently, but, you know, it remains heavily orientated towards Westminster in terms of its understanding of issues. There's actually a recent report for Ofcom out, uh, looking at how the BBC covers different nations of the, of the United Kingdom. Alex Salmon, the leader of the Scottish National Party, was scathing in his assessment of the BBC's record during the 2014 referendum. As far as the BBC is concerned, then they have fine, outstanding journalists, and I'll start to name them, if you like, like David Dimbleby or Brian Taylor and a number of others. But in terms of their performance through the, this referendum campaign, then I think there's a, a huge difference between being a public service broadcaster and being a state broadcaster, and I'm not certain that the BBC understand that difference. Um, so that, that's the, the question on, on Scotland. Now, in terms of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership... I mean, you know, Corbyn comes from outside of what is usually the acceptable kind of politics of Westminster. You know, he was an outsider. He wasn't well known to the BBC. He had been involved in left wing activism rather than, uh, and you know, he was an outsider. But when we think about the sort of politics that he represents, I mean, two main sort of prongs of Jeremy Corbyn's politics, I suppose. I mean, number one was the anti-austerity movement, you know, exactly that sort of response to the conservative policy after the 2000 after 2008 but also you know a growing opposition to neoliberalism you know to uh, an ability to uh, an, an increasing awareness on the broad left that there that we can understand new labor and thatcher sharing a particular political agenda and, and giving that a name right so there's this anti-liberal, anti-austerity side of Jeremy Corbyn's politics, but like I think perhaps even more significantly, there's the anti-imperialism, the internationalism which has defined him. These two elements, though, cut so profoundly against the dominant culture at the BBC 
both in terms of its orientation towards officialdom, its extensive relationship with the British state and indeed the secret state, and the the general sort of elite elite circles with 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 which the the, the BBC and BBC journalists are are embedded. So. You know, Jeremy Corbyn was was an outsider, and his politics was very much anathema to the, to the BBC, as we found it in 2015. Even though, you know, in the 1970s, most people at the top of the BBC would have very much taken for granted the the sort of policy positions which were being advocated by Corbyn and his followers. As a final question, what impact do you think the plan announced by the Tories to scrap the licence fee is likely to have if put into effect? And is there a model of public service broadcasting around which the left can organise today? I mean, the first thing I want to say is that I don't think there is. I think it'd be overstating to say that the government has a plan to scrap the license fee. I mean, they certainly stated that that's their intention to do so, but it doesn't seem to amount to a plan because it doesn't. I don't think they really know exactly what they want to do. So basically, what happened here was the Dean Dorries had told the right wing press that the license fee wasn't going to be extended past the current Royal Charter, which expires in twenty twenty seven. So the BBC was going to have to find a way to fund itself through alternative models or whatever. Now, that by the time Doris went to Parliament, they sort of rode back a bit from that. And she was saying that, you know, we're going to have a debate about the future of the BBC and the model of public service broadcasting. You know, that that's something which I think the left should be welcoming. I mean, I, I and others have been arguing that the, the model that we've inherited at the BBC is, is profoundly dissatisfactory for for all the reasons we've been discussing and for even for some of the reasons which the Conservatives themselves are sought to politically mobilise. So one of the arguments that they've been making is that the licence fee imposes and this this, uh, disproportionate cost on low-income groups. Uh, It's basically a regressive tax. I mean, that's just just true. Obviously, the right you know, it, it takes a degree of nerve and there's no lack of that on the right at the moment to argue that they have the interests of low-income groups at heart. So that's not what mo- what's motivating them, but it doesn't make the critique itself untrue. So there are profound problems with the BBC. And the question becomes, you know, how should the left orientate itself towards that? Now, traditionally speaking, the at least the liberal left have tended to sort of shy away from any kind of criticism at the BBC on the basis that this was sort of, you know, encourage the BBC's enemies, uh, the Murdochs of this world and, and the sort of cultural vandals in the Tory party. But the problem with that position is that if you don't offer any kind of critique, you can't really be offering an alternative vision, like you need to address some of the problems. So in answer to your question of like what model the left could organise around, I mean, I think basically you have to start with the problems with the current BBC and then think about what the alternative would be. Now, we've touched on a lot of these already. I mean, the the licence fee, I'm sort of, what I've advocated for is its replacement with a digital license fee, which would, would, wouldn't be a flat tax, right? So we could actually address the problems with um, it falling disproportionately on low-income households. You could have it as a household levy. You could have it as a public broadcasting tax. I favour a digital license fee for much as anything uh, for symbolic reasons, because the original license fee, in fact, wasn't a fee for accessing BBC services. It was a fee 
for having television or radio receiving equipment. So it's it should have a sort of symbolic claim to it, in my view, of making a public claim on the, on a shared resource. Now, in the case of of broadcast, the shared resource there was like the so-called airwaves. Now, in this case, I think it has to be a shared democratic claim on our digital space. Now, we're at a profound juncture, I think, where we're seeing the emergence of these extraordinarily powerful corporations, mainly American multinationals, with extraordinary uh, powers of surveillance and control over our communicative system and the left needs to be thinking are thinking indeed about how, what the political response to that should be and i think the left's position on the bbc needs to be considered in that particular context right start off by thinking about the bbc as being part of a broader system of digital communications and and cultural production think about how that could be organized but then but also think about how it can be funded now i think one of the the key questions is around this idea of subscription model, which seems to be basically what the what the government is advocating. And I, I think part of the problem here has been that the left has often fallen, well, the BBC and the left has fallen into this trap of thinking about the licence fee as being a sort of compulsory subscription. Um, but I think we should be moving away from that and thinking about, as, a, as I said, as being a democratic claim. Well, that brings us to questions of governance and political accountability. The central problem with the BBC is its relationship to the British state and the broader culture and institutions around the British state in London, you know, the powerful institutions in British society. If we want a genuinely independent and representative organisation, then you need to break up that London-based managerial culture you need to have a devolved platform i think which is 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 democratically accountable it's far more participatory but the key thing is when it comes to subscription that it has to be universal because the the one of the underlining principles of public service broadcasting was that everybody should have access to shared political informational cultural resources which facilitate our full participation in society and i think you know that's something which the left should be arguing for and it's something which which liberals should share because it's not there's nothing particularly radical about it you know it's this basic sort of liberal social liberal democratic theory right the idea that we all need to have equal access to information and culture to, to participate in society i think part of the problem with having to make these arguments about the BBC is it feels so far removed from the, you know, the BBC as we know it today, and particularly as the left has experienced it in the last decade, when I think amongst a lot of people has been, to put it sort of mildly, a profound kind of disillusionment with, with the BBC. And my response to that is to say, look, I, I completely understand that. I mean, the BBC is fundamentally broken, but I, that's why I think it needs to be fundamentally fixed. You should start from the principle of what kinds of sets of institutions do we want and uh, think about how we get there. Now, to me, if you've got an existing public infrastructure which has history and resources and capacities, then you can take what's good of that, um, but you have to be making them reality-based political demands that don't aren't starry-eyed like the people often are about the BBC. To think about the BBC as it actually exists, 
and in doing so, try and identify and pinpoint the problems with uh, the institution so that we can think about building something different. And I think the BBC, we had to see the BBC, as I said, as being part of a much broader political response to the rise of big tech, but also to problems with politics. And it doesn't have to just be a national question. I mean, the BBC pioneered public service broadcasting and was emulated in many countries around the world. And like ultimately, what I would like to see would be a network of public media organisations and platforms which could share resources and and programming and staff and really build up a much more international community of and network and uh, system of cultural exchange, which, you know, arguably is one of the the good elements of the tech platforms, but without some of the like very serious kind of regressive tendencies that you, you have on these private platforms. Many thanks to Tom Mills for that perspective on the history and future of the BBC. You can read some of his articles on the politics of public service broadcasting on the Jacobin website. <laughs> 